Please remain standing. Please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs 18, verses 1 to 21. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. When the wicked comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes reproach. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips enter into contention and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his destruction and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles and they go down into the inmost body. He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own esteem. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and shame to him. The spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness but who can bear a broken heart, a broken spirit, forgive me. But who can bear a broken spirit? The heart of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Please be seated. Chapter 17 focused on a catalog of fools. We talked about that last time. That there were these different types of fools that were listed out for us. And chapter 18 moves to sort of the combat of the fool and the wise. I promised you a fight and I intend to deliver it. This has a sort of combat between the fool and the wise man. The first 11 verses have a laying out of the strife creating speech of the fool versus the defense of the righteous. And that's sort of the tag tail end of that section. So that's the first 11 verses. And then verse 12 is a bridge. And then verses 13 to 21 discuss the peace that's created by the speech of the wise. And that word peace is in the broad sense that Shalom is used in terms of the prospering, the blessing, the removal of strife, the removal of curse, the presence of blessing, so to speak. So the, the blessedness that comes, the peace that comes by the speech of the wise man. So what we have here in verses 1 through 21 is the verbal combat of the fool and the wise man. And what we will see as we examine these types of combat with the words is that the fool picks fights over more things than the wise man, and the wise man ends fights more readily than the fool. But when the wise man fights, he gains more than the fool does, and he gains the spoils of victory. The wise man knows that he cannot win his fights by his own power, by his own cleverness, by his own ability, but he trusts in God to give him gain even in contention when the cause is just. So going back to the beginning of the section, if we look at Verses 1 through 11, again, this is the strife-creating speech of the fool, is the main focus. The first three verses serve as an introduction. And they focus on the strife that's generated by the fool and the alienating tendencies of sin. 
So let's look at those three verses. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. When the wicked comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes reproach. So the first verse gives to us the idea that a man who isolates himself is seeking his own desire. What what does that mean? The idea that the man who isolates himself, why do you get away from people? Why do you get away from people? Well, people are annoying. Why are they annoying? People are annoying because you can't do whatever you want when those people are around. There are pressures, there are tendencies to push you to do things other than what you would want to do. There's a discomfort that comes from being around people. You have to try. You have to pay attention to yourself. You can't just do whatever you want and be relaxed. There's an effort that goes into dealing with people. And so the desire to be isolated so you can do what you want, be left alone, to just carry on as you please, is a desire that is often pursued by people so they can do what they want. But let me ask you, those who just do as they please, without regard to the pressures of social duties, without having to be pushed to deal with issues by other forces, those people tend to flourish? Do they tend to maximize their competency? Do they tend to produce more? Do they tend to divide labor effectively? The isolation of a man is not a good thing. It is not good for man to be alone. And so, we see that God instituted marriage because a marriage is a, an immediate way of making it so that even in intimate spaces there is companionship. And also, so there would be children who would fill the earth, so there would be more people to have to deal with. And so we have the covenant institutions where there is obligation to deal with people. You have an obligation to deal with God as an individual. In the household, there are duties that exist in the church and in the state. And a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He wants to avoid the authority of the state, avoid the authority of the church, avoid the authority of people in the household, or avoid having to deal with caring for people under his authority in the household. We men, the the male element of the race, We have a tendency to be more interested in things than women are. By things, I don't mean the general term for all things that are ever made. I mean in terms of objects, guns, trucks, baseball trading cards, video games, whatever. Things draw the attention of men more than they tend to draw the attention of women. Men tend to be engineers more than women do for the same reason. There's a general desire to deal with things. And the things, the nice thing about things is they don't talk back. Women have a general interest that's higher in relationship. And so, when you have the reality that there's a higher interest in relationship by women and a higher interest in things by men, The tendency for isolation, in a general way, is more often a male problem than a female problem. And so, the concern about isolation. At the same time, if the female tendency is not to isolate, it is instead, we're told in the curse in Genesis 3, that it's the desire to rule over people, to dominate the man, to... Um, there's a tendency towards strife in the child relationship and in the husband relationship to the wife. And so, Proverbs is full of discussion about how it's better to be alone than to be around a nagging woman. And so, there is this warning there and this, this tendency for the man to flee, for the woman to dominate, for, for those types of things to, to occur. So, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. So, there's this alienating thing, the the tendency towards strife and alienation. And that's a foolish behavior. This this being by self, 
is a raging against wise judgment. And that's because there's a getting away from the effects of relationship and of authority. Verse 2, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. Well, it seems like if you're not around anybody, then there's not going to be opportunity to express. So this is now a different tendency of the fool. So there's the flight tendency of the fool, and there's the fight tendency of the fool. These are two tendencies that are set side by side. These are two different tendencies of the, of the fool. And you may wonder, you may, you may look at yourself and you may go, well, I don't want to tell anybody this, but I think I can remember lots of times where I've done both. And you'd be right. I'm sure you have done both. But you also probably have one that you tend towards. So we all tend toward both in terms of a sinful falling off to the left or to the right. But there's one that is probably the more dominant tendency in you. And so, if you find that you prefer to express yourself, or if you find that you prefer to be left alone, which one is the more dominant one that will help you to to have a sense of the, the tendency? If you're more kingly, you probably prefer to be left alone to go do stuff. If you're more priestly, you probably prefer to try to be able to express yourself and also, if you're more prophetic, you probably prefer that as well. Those general desires to express those things. But the prophetic could also prefer to be left alone and go find their books. So there's a little bit of a you know, falling to either side there that can occur. Now, verse 3. When the wicked comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes reproach. So these three verses set up sort of a a collection of alienating tendencies of the fool in combat uh, with words. There's isolation, the not having fights that need to happen. There's the not trying to understand the other party, but instead seeking to express. And that's going to increase alienation and make it so that there's not resolution to things. The fastest way to resolve a conflict is to understand the other person's position. If you understand the other person's position, then what you are able to do is you are able to analyze it more effectively. And you can consider, does this match with my position? Sometimes fights are just because of misunderstanding. And once you realize what the other person's position is, you realize you agree. Other times, you realize you disagree, but when you really understand the other person's position, you realize they're right. And so when you understand them, you then realize that your position needs to become their position. And other times, when you really understand another person's position, you now realize what's wrong with it. And you're able to quickly communicate what needs to be communicated to deconstruct that position. Or to be able to negotiate and understand what the other person wants and what you have to offer. Listening to understand. One of the best tools to be able to see if you're listening well is to try to state back the person's position to them. So if you listen to a person and you're able to state back to them, to their face, what their position is, if you can do that and they accept it, that's a pretty good sign that you've understood the other person. Verse 3, when the wicked comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes reproach. Dishonor brings reproach. When you dishonor other people, it's going to bring reproach to yourself. When you dishonor authorities, it's going to bring more reproach to yourself. And so dishonor brings reproach. Dishonor comes from contempt. When you have a hatred and low view of somebody else, when you have a hatred and low view of an authority. Honor does not tend to flow from that. Dishonor tends to flow from it. And so the wicked have a tendency towards a hating and low view expression of the people they are dealing with. And that tends towards the expression of dishonor, which tends towards 
bringing blowback. The blowback in conversation increases the wicked's contempt for the other person. It accelerates the fight. It makes it so that there's a snipping at each other, a tearing at each other, a rending apart of each other. Blowback begets blowback. There is an escalating of the fighting that occurs. And so, these tendencies, these three tendencies that are laid out for us as an introduction and things to look out for for foolish communication are the tendency to isolate and to not deal with other people's wisdom. The tendency to not want to listen, but to just express yourself. I want to be heard. I want to be understood. The desire to be understood is universal. But if we just want to express ourselves and not understand the other, that is foolishness. And the third one, the idea of dishonoring the other party in the conflict in a way that brings reproach, that brings blowback, and so causes a cycle of strife and the acceleration of conflict. That is the opposite of peacemaking. And so these are tendencies that we're introduced to in the way of the fool. These are the weapons of the fool in conflict. And I want you to think about how often you see this kind of conflict. The avoiding legitimate criticism. The expressing and not wanting to hear. And dishonoring and contempt of the other party as a mechanism to try to either control the other party or to make it so that nobody else cares about what that party has to say. Those tendencies of fighting, those tendencies have manifested themselves in our public sphere in dramatic ways, and they've manifested themselves in popular culture, and they manifest themselves in the way that conflict works in homes and in workplaces and in general amongst friends. And as a result, friendships are unstable. I want you to imagine a culture where people give long, argued speeches on the floor of Congress and where the other members of Congress actually sit there and listen to it. I want you to imagine a culture where people give political speeches in the presence of their political opponent and their political opponent gives a speech after them. I want you to imagine a time where there are political debates that last hours and where there's an ability to deal with the same subject doing back and forth multiple times as opposed to switching questions every three minutes. What kind of a culture allows for those types of things as opposed to what we see now? And so these behaviors are what we see now. And so we can create a starkly different culture underneath the covering of church authority in our households we can do it in businesses. We can try to have a distinctly different culture than conflict like that. Verse 4. This begins the, the body of this first section. And so we have verses 4 through 8. This is a chunk. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips enter into contention. And his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. Verse 4. The words of a wise man's mouth are deep waters. So, um, sorry, not a wise man. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. In general, when people are speaking, there is far more there than the initial reading would give. When you hear people's words, their initial speaking of words, there is often far more behind what people are saying than is readily apparent. So the question is, how do you understand what people are saying? Well, it's typically by asking further questions. It requires effort. The, the way most people speak, I want you to honestly assess for a minute. How often do you listen to somebody talk to you and say to yourself, Wow, that was really clear. I know exactly what you mean. And now I know what to do. We're, you know, basically, this is done. We're done. This is a short conversation. Versus how often do you go, 
I'm not sure what you want. Or, okay, well, I need to follow up here because this doesn't seem to address exactly what we're dealing with. The more conflict, the higher the conflict, the more tendency there is to sort of a, a guardedness in speech. The easier it is, the more likely it is that it's going to be simple and, and clear. But when you're dealing with conflict, which is sort of the broader context of this chapter, there's a tendency towards dark sayings. Are deep waters, are deep waters clear? They become dark. When you have deep waters, there's, there's a darkness there. You can't see to the bottom of it. The, the deep waters lead to darkness. On the other side, a wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. The idea is that you have this, a flowing brook is, is going to be shallow. A flowing brook is going to be clear. And so the, the, the one from whom wisdom comes is going to be clear. And also, life-giving, deep waters, you can have deep waters, where are those typically? In the sea. And so you have this idea of kind of salt water in there as well. This idea of, of waters that are flowing are going to be healthy, good for you. They're going to have, tend to be uh, something that's uh, less polluted. And then if you have something that is a deep water, the tendency is going to be towards salt water. And so we have this idea of darkness and not good. And we have the idea of clarity, lightness, and a source of life. Or what is good. And so we have a contrast here between clear speech and dark sayings. And in general, the words of a man's mouth are dark sayings. And we don't always know what's in the heart. Whereas the heart of the wise is going to be an absence of deceit in it. There's going to be clarity. Verse 5, It is not good to show partiality to the wicked, or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. The tendency to listen to words rather than to judge actions makes it so that it is, uh, is, is a way of dealing with things partially, that the failure to deal with people impartially comes sometimes from uh, being susceptible to flattery, being susceptible to be persuaded and to not pay attention to what's actually happening. And so partiality to the wicked results in rewarding the wicked and when you subsidize a thing do you get more of it or less of it you get more and so if you reward wickedness you get more wickedness if you overthrow the righteous in judgment you're taxing it and when you tax a thing you get less of it and so if there's less of that if you if you overthrow righteousness rather than showing it favor the issue here is there's a duty to show favor to the righteous and a duty to show disfavor to the wicked. And so when dealing with conflict, judgment ought to go in favor of the righteous. And so if we don't deal with conflict well and we reward the wrong people, we're going to end up with more of what's bad and less of what's good. And so you need to listen carefully. You have to ask. You have to seek to understand. Or else there's going to be a tendency towards sort of randomized judgment or wrong judgment. And so, verse 6, a fool's lips enter into contention and his mouth calls for blows. Right? The fool rushes to the fight. We're told elsewhere that the wise man seeks to put an end to the fight. The wise man seeks to settle out the case before it goes to court. The wise man seeks to resolve the matter to avoid shame and the airing out of details. So a fool's lips enter into contention, he picks fights, and his mouth calls for blows. And when he starts the fight, he accelerates it. This is a, this is a, this is a rep- repetition of a principle. Verse 3 says that dishonor brings reproach. Verse 6 says that the mouth of the fool calls for blows. There's this calling for chastisement that the mouth of the fool brings. The raising of the contention, the increasing of the fight, the accelerating of the conflict and doing so in a way that makes it so that there's a tendency towards violence. So the, a king is required to not multiply gold, not multiply wives, and not multiply horses and chariots. And we're told that an elder is supposed to not be a slave to wine, which is 
relates to the idea of not having multiplying wives, not being a slave to pleasure. The idea of not loving gold, right? This relates to not multiplying gold. And the 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 elder is called to uh, not be a a person that's a brawler, not a tendency towards being domineering or violent, not a bully. And so not multiplying chariots and horses has to do with not using domineering physical strength or not using power to try to control, and the same with the bullying or the domineering. So the fool's lips enter into contention, and the fool calls for blows on self. The fool sort of picks a fight. There's a phrase in the English-speaking world, fighting words. Right? There are fighting words. You can say fighting words, and you can try to bring a fight about. And so this idea that someone can try to cause a fight by saying something uh, that is designed to start a fight is something that was, has been used in law, in common law areas, to try to deal with the possibility that a person could be starting a fight by the words that they say. And so we have to evaluate not just who struck first, but also what people said beforehand. So, a fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his destruction. Right, so here, the fool picks fights with his mouth. The, pool, the fool calls harm on himself with his words. And the fool's mouth is his destruction. The fool needs to gain control of the mouth. This is not something that, that should be just allowed to run free the tongue should be controlled. So the fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. And we think about this. Verse 6 talks about the body and calling for blows, but verse 7 says there's a trap for the soul. How can your own mouth set a trap for your soul? It sets a trap for your soul in that, one, you can rile yourself up to a fight. You can speak in such a way that you rile yourself up to an unnecessary fight. The other thing is that you can, by your lips, make it so that if you say negative things, if you attack, have you ever known a fool who lies about a situation to justify themselves and it seems as though over time they come to believe the things they are saying? And so that saying of negative things over and over again you set a trap for yourself and you even lie to yourself and there's a self-deceit and that self-deceit also encourages a sort of isolating because guess what when you've convinced yourself of a story but you have a little reminder somewhere in the back of your head about it you do not want to get in conflict with the person who is going to tell you that they disagree with your interpretation of the story. That is a very painful thing. And if you have people you've been telling one interpretation of the story, and on the other side there's the people who you're in conflict with, if there's a colliding of the one story with the other story, that can be very painful and shameful. So a fool's mouth is his destruction. And his lips are the snare of his soul. And so there's this, you're kind of building up the cost of repentance if you set up a trap for yourself by lying to yourself and justifying yourself to other people with lies. Verse 8, the words of a talebearer or gossip or slander, they're like tasty trifles. Right? There's, there's, a, there's an entertainment value, a pleasantness to hearing gossip. It's interesting to hear things about other people. Things you have no responsibility for, business in. You know, it's like, it's like a tragedy or a drama or comedy. There's a show. And so hearing other people's business is a disconnected element. And at the same time, if you know them, there's a connected element. And so you get the entertainment value of being connected and the sense of ease about not having responsibility for it. So the words of the talebearer, it's like eating little little snacks. Just a bag of Cheetos right there. Not the fiery ones. Those are disgusting. What's wrong with you? And so you, you get that little collection of snacks. And they go down into the inmost body. The, the, the literal language is the rooms of the belly. Now I like the rooms of the belly because here's the problem. 
They take residence in those rooms, and they don't leave for a long time. And it's the belly. And you, you take this in, you get this little junk food snack, and what does it do? It, it lards you up, and it makes you not useful. And it takes residence for a long time. You listen to gossip, and what happens with gossip is you take these negative things about other people, and they take residence in your soul for a long time. And it makes you far less useful to them, because here's what happens. You have this tendency towards the contempt of the one you've heard this about. And guess what? You were gossiping about them, so you can't talk to them about it. There's a tendency towards isolation and gossiping about people. You can't talk to them about it. Maybe you can find a way to cleverly get them to tell you the thing you already know. Does anything happen recently with bonnets? You just try to find something. Oh, how do you know about that? That's a very particular and weird question to ask me. Nobody wears bonnets anymore. But yes, there is a story, a weird story, about bonnets. So you, you can try to get the information to be revealed. And the weird revealing efforts of that also create a sense of alienation sometimes. You can, you can sometimes pass it off with skill and get somebody to reveal it. But a lot of times people detect it. I mean, have you ever had a time where somebody, you could tell they were fishing for information they already knew from you? Ever had that happen to you? And so when that happens, that also creates a sense of alienation. So the danger about gossip is you either uselessly carrying around contempt against people or you have this information and you need to do something about it and you've got to find some way to make it so that it's acceptable for you to know. And so it creates something that's long-lasting in your inward person. It's a negative thing. Verse 9. He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. And this seems really weird. It seems out of place. We've been talking about conflict. We've been talking about the mouth. What's this about? This is the conclusion to this set of of things. We're going to get in verses 10 and 11. There's going to be a contrast of the combat of the fool versus the wise man. But what we have here at verse 9 is the conclusion to the prior part. And that is, it's hard work to get yourself to speak in a useful way. It's very hard work. It's hard work to get yourself to speak in a useful way. It is very easy to take the little tasty trifles of gossip. It is easy to pick fights. It's easy to get away from people. It's, it's easy to have people in contempt and to not try to understand them. It's hard work to understand people. It's hard work. You've got to listen. You have to pay attention. You can say, oh, tell me about your view. And you can just stop thinking about it and go think about something else. Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked somebody a question and then as soon as they start to answer you, you start thinking about something else because you're like, what you were saying right now is boring. And then as opposed to listening, you don't. And then you realize they finished talking. Oh no. And you either have to ask them to say it again or you just try to roll with it. And that's a terrible idea. Do not try to roll with it. That is a terrible idea. So when you ask again, then you have to sit through it a second time. Listening to people is hard. And if it's not about something that affects you and it's not about helping you, do you think that increases the difficulty or diminishes the difficulty? Obviously it increases it. You're dealing with somebody else's problem or trying to deal with that. So you have to try to care and engage and understand. And so... If you're slothful in your work of dealing with conflict and relationship, you are a brother to the one who destroys relationships. This is the final part of the the slothful one, the fool. The fool tends towards these things that alienate and create strife. The fool uses the mouth wrongly. And the fool tends towards not working hard to save relationship or resolve conflict. The fool tends towards either destroying or letting things fall apart. And so this is a range of the types of things the fool does. And if you're the wise man, this is, this is the sort of Goliath. This is the giant. This is what this makes. You see this giant and you go, this is the way everybody is. This is the way I am. This is the way everybody is. How are we ever going to see the unity of the faith fill the earth? How are we ever going to see the church grow, the kingdom of God exalted? How are we ever going to see a general agreement of things? How will there be this increasing of cooperation to get stuff done? It seems like there's just more and more denominations, not less, not, not coming to agreement. 
And so that all encourages us to just not work, to not do it, and to just watch it fall apart. He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. The work of resolving conflict, the work of learning to speak well, the work of trying to understand the other person's position is a worthy work. And we have a promise of the blessing of God on it. Now, in the midst of all of this, it seems like there's no way to engage in a fruitful way here. But verse 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. All of this possible harm, all of this possible harm, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem. Right, there's, there's two possible ways that somebody could try to come and solve this. And you go, that's okay. We'll overcome all of this with money. You know, I just, you know, what, you know what settles contention? Just pay people money. You're upset? Here's money. Let's just keep doing this. Well, that's not going to do it. That's not sufficient. Now, there's a place for money. And when you cause somebody harm with money, giving them money is a way of solving that harm. But thinking that money and bribes and things like that can make it so that there's just a resolving of conflict is insufficient in itself. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. And here's what that means. One, they call on God in prayer. And two, they explicitly say, we need to solve this problem. We need to resolve this conflict to the glory of God. So there's a calling on God in prayer, and there's a calling on God in the conflict to say, we need to seek to glorify God in this conflict and get peace, get reconciliation. Now, verse 12 serves as a bridge. It connects to two groups. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. If you're going into conflict and you are proud, that conflict is not going to go well. If you go into it hard, if you go into it with a hardness of heart, if you go into it with pride, you're going to bring shame on yourself. There will be destruction in the conflict. Before honor is humility. If you enter a conflict with humility and acknowledge the glory of God as the pursuit in the conflict, and if you are willing to acknowledge your own failures in it, if you are willing to go through the four G's and the seven A's, and then when somebody apologizes to you, give them the four promises of forgiveness, if there's that attitude going into conflict, then what we're going to see is that tends towards honoring Now, verse 13 to 21, this is a chunk that says, this is talking talking about the peace-creating speech of the wise. So we have a contrast now. So we've seen the combat of the fool. We've seen the Goliath that is to be fought. And there's this category set of fools back in chapter 17 that we saw. And it went went kind of between the, the wise and the fool there as well. And here now we have what the wise man does. Verse 13. He who answers a matter, verses 13 to 15 are an introduction about the unteachable fool versus the teachable wise. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. A spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but but who can bear a broken spirit? The spirit of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Okay, so look at the beginning. He who answers a matter... Before he hears it, it is a folly and shame to him. Right? We said, we said, you know, if you don't listen, you're trying to roll with it. The danger there is you didn't hear it, so you're now trying to answer. The whole point of asking to understand is so that you don't answer the matter first. You seek to understand the other person's position. If you just answer first, you are likely to create chaos. You increase the problems. You add an additional person to the conflict, or you deepen the conflict. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and and shame to him. So this need to hear both sides, to hear things, and to be willing to deal with the conflict. The spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? The spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness. 
If you are going through physical suffering, but you have hope, there's a strength in that. But if you don't have any hope, physical health doesn't fix that. If you don't have any hope, physical health doesn't fix that. The heart of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So, the heart of the prudent acquires knowledge by giving focus, attention, to trying to understand more deeply. And the ear of the wise seeks knowledge, he listens. And so there's an attention of the heart, and there's the ear being used. And so the emphasis on listening as opposed to just speaking. Now, listening just to listen is not valuable in itself. You can listen to somebody bluster, and it's not going to generate a lot of value. You ask questions that are designed to draw out what matters. You ask questions to draw out what matters. And then you listen. So asking of questions is a way of drawing out the important things. And so this idea of inquiring about what is going on. You don't answer a matter before you hear it, and you don't and you don't just listen. You ask about the situation and you listen. And then you give an answer. So that's the introduction. And then verse sixteen through nineteen, a man's gift makes room for him. This is about conflict and justice. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. So a man's gift brings him, makes room for him and brings him before great men. Verse 16. This is, this is by itself, this idea that if you have something that you can give to somebody, right, then you can get them to listen to you. And that can be something that's just a gift, or it can be um, you know, sort of a skill. You think about gifting in the broader sense. But the idea here, a man's gift makes room for him. This is, again, we're in the context of all this conflict resolution proverb set. If you are good at understanding and resolving disputes, that peaceableness, that capacity to solve difficult conflicts will make room for you amongst great men. Your ability to solve large problems and to resolve significant conflicts makes room for you amongst great men. This is something you're looking for in men to rule. Now, if you are good at resolving conflicts, a part of that is the ability to judge well who is in the right, even if you're one of the disputants. If you can judge well that somebody else is in the right or judge well that you're in the right, then you're able to figure out how to press the conflict. If you're listening to other parties, your ability to determine who is in the right and why will make it so that you are far more capable of dealing with those conflicts. So the man's gifting to deal with conflict in particular makes room for him before great men. It makes it so that he is able to interact with great men. So that's a rising in power. This is something that gives dominion. The ability to give, to con- have conflict resolution that's effective increases your stature and station in life. And so one of the things you need to know in order to be effective at judging cases and at resolving conflicts is the fact that not only for other people but also for yourself, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. I have had many experiences in my life where I have heard somebody explain to me the situation and I go, this is outrageous. You're absolutely right. We need to do something about this right now. And then I go and talk to the other person for about five seconds and go, oh, oh, I see. That's more reasonable than I thought. Why don't you explain more, please? 
And so that process of making sure you hear both sides, it feels like it takes more time. But I assure you, it takes less time. It feels like it takes more. But I assure you, it takes less. Now, the one example of when it doesn't take less time is when you hear the first party and you think to yourself, even if all of this is true, I'm not doing anything about it. Then hearing the other side takes more time. And that ends with, I'll think about it. And you move on. So, the hearing about both sides when you're concerned that something is significant enough that you need to do something about it. Now, here's the other thing. Verse 18 talks about difficult cases. When you're the judge, you want to hear both sides. When you're in a dispute with somebody else and it's difficult to get it to be resolved and it may be very difficult and costly to get an authority involved, verse 18 tells you a great way to deal with that. Casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. I've had a thing I've done in the last couple of years with a lot of contracts I've written. I have a coin flip clause. There's things we can choose. We can just agree. You can just agree in the contract. If we don't want to go through arbitration, don't want to go through whatever, we can just agree to flip a coin. And that will resolve the dispute about the contract. It's a great clause. Write once, copy and paste, put into other things. Now, both parties have to agree to that. But the idea that you just resolve a thing by casting a lot to have contentions cease, that can keep the mighty apart, avoid unnecessary lawsuits, avoid wars. So, verse 19, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. It's a difficult thing to win a brother over when you've offended him, which is one of the reasons why the gifting of good conflict resolution will make it so that you can be noticed by great men. If you are able to resolve conflict, if you're able to win over your brother when there's an offense, that shows a great ability to control yourself. We're told in other places in the scriptures that the ability to control yourself is more impressive than being able to take a city. That if you can control yourself, you are stronger than the mighty. So self-control is that Self-control in conflict allows you to suffer abuses in a conflict for the sake of resolution and for the sake of glorifying God in the conflict. And you can overlook offenses in the process and try to bring about resolution. Contentions make it harder to take the strong city. Contentions are like bars in the castle because when there's fighting... It hardens both sides, and it makes it harder to win your brother. Which means this. When you're in the middle of an argument with somebody, you go, there's 13 things we're arguing about. Well, one of them really matters. Don't bring up the other 12. Seek resolution, deal with the important thing, and just accept loss on minor things. Or you can increase the hardening of the person you're arguing with and try to engage on all of them. Now, There's times when they're all important. There's times when you can't let something go. But what you have to do is to carefully consider which things can I let go? Which slaps on the face can I just turn the other cheek about? Which things can I just go the extra mile on? And the general tendency of trying to make peace is going to be to accept slaps and to walk extra miles. And when you do that, it's similar to the kind of work it takes to take a city. You want to take a city, you can just do a frontal assault. Lots of people will die. If you instead intelligently make people move around and try to flank and attack from a position that's not noticed, things like that, indirect assaults require extra work. They do. You can try to dig below walls and try to cause them to collapse. There's all sorts of work that can be done. The hard work to take a city is very different from the sloppy, messy, incompetent assault against a city. And the same is true in a conflict. You have to be willing to pay a price to seek to find resolution. And those prices cannot just always be money. They're oftentimes taking offenses. So a brother who's offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. They increase the difficulty of getting in. Verse 20. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. 
From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. This relates back to what we saw at the very end of of the first section, verse 9, the conclusion of that first section is, he who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. If you're not trying very hard to resolve conflict, you're basically just destroying relationships. And on the other side, if you try hard, there is a fruit to be enjoyed. The fruit of the mouth of working hard to bring about peace through allowing justice to exist in conflicts satisfies the stomach. It satisfies the inward man because of the produce of the lips of that work. Verse 21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The love of words that are true brings life, and the love of words that are false brings death. And you will eat the fruit of your tongue. You will eat the fruit of what you say. The question is, what use do you intend to put your tongue to? That will determine the fruit that it bears. And you will eat of it. Now, a final conclusion on this. The fool picks fights over more things than the wise man does. The wise man ends fights more readily than the fool. Now, how does that happen? It's not ending fights by any compromise. The wise man's willing to do the work or take the slap or, or go the extra mile to end the fight. But when the wise man fights, he gains because his fighting is something that's going to be wisely done over wisely, point, wisely chosen points of battle. And so, picking those fights, there's going to be a choosing of decisive points about important things that matter. And so there will be a gain from the fight, whereas the fool dissipates energy and time. The wise man gets the spoils of victory in conflict. The wise man knows that he cannot win his fights by his own power, so he prays in the conflict. And he seeks to use the means that God has appointed and not be pragmatic, not tend towards just doing what works, but seeking to apply the law of God. And again, depends upon God and prays. He trusts in God to give him gain, even in the midst of contention, when the cause is just. And when the cause is not just, he surrenders. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Okay, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to speak wisely and to pick our fights wisely. We ask that you would bless us, that you would cause us to use our tongues well and give to us the fruit of life in the tongue, that you would profit and bless us, that you would help us to not be slothful in our work, but that we would, rather than being akin to destroyers, be akin to builders and healers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.